I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. The Best in the World Podcast with Richard Parr. Hello again and welcome to The Best in the World with Richard Parr, where every week we speak to Olympic champions, world champions, world number ones or former world record holders or current world record holders in fact to find out what they do differently from the rest of us to become the very best in their fields. Yes, these are gold medalists. These are the people who reach the pinnacles of their sports. And I'm delighted to say that this week I got to speak to Callum Skinner. He was part of the British team that won the team sprint at the Rio de Janeiro Games in 2016. He also won a silver medal in the individual sprint, losing to his friend and roommate Jason Kenny. And that's one of the things we get to talk about on this week's podcast with Callum. He discusses how him and Jason were preparing leading up just hours before their big final in that team sprint in Rio de Janeiro and the way they would tease each other just before they went to bed. It's really funny stuff there with Callum. He talks about how they would cope with the pressure at being at the games, how they play video games such as Civilization. And then he talks about all of his training and his diet and everything which goes into making an Olympic champion. Plus, it gets a little bit deeper when Callum talks about how he found a lump on his neck and he was diagnosed by various doctors that they thought it could be cancerous. But fortunately for Callum, he got the all clear. It wasn't cancerous and he went on to become an Olympic gold medalist. So we learn from Callum exactly how he was able to cope with that whole experience and move on to even greater things. It's a really good chat with Callum Skinner. It's coming up in just a moment, but I want to tell you that today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is one of the leading suppliers of audiobooks in the world. They've got over 180,000 titles to choose from. I recently listened to Ariana Huffington's Thrive, a very good book. I'd recommend you listen to it. And guess what? You can do it for free. Yes, Audible are giving you the chance to try out their service for 30 days for free. Nada, nothing. Cost you nothing for those 30 days and you will get a free audio book to download. Perhaps that could be Ariana Huffington's book, Thrive. To do that, all you've got to do is go to audibletrial.com forward slash best. That's audibletrial.com forward slash best to test out their service and get your free audiobook. It's as simple as that. All right, let's get to it. Let's learn from the very best. It's time to speak to Callum Skinner. <laughs> 
The Best in the World Podcast with Richard Parr. Callum Skinner, welcome to The Best in the World with Richard Parr. Now, when I was doing my homework about you, I found out that it was the 2004 games that inspired you for cycling, in particular what Chris Hoy was up to. And when you were winning your gold medal in the 2016 games at Rio, did you ever think that you might be doing the same to a new generation of cyclists or do you not get a time to think about anything like that? Um, no, people ask us quite a lot. Um, do, do you think about the people that you could be um, you know, inspiring back at home? Because, you know, as you said correctly, um, I, I, I was kind of you know intrigued by... By the venue and, and the sport from watching from watching the game myself, but the, the truth is that when you're there, you're just so focused on on your job in hand that you don't really have time to think about uh, what might happen, you know, back home. But I mean, there's something that you can devote a bit of time to afterwards, and I think that's something I did after the games a little bit was you know go down to kind of a few little cycling clubs and things like that just to um, hopefully kind of capitalise on on uh, on any interest that was there. Mm. So. Tell us what is going through your mind that day. Tell us the, the whole build-up to the day and, and kind of what you're doing and what you're up to. Um, well, we tend to race towards kind of late afternoon. So we have a lot of the day just to kind of um, waste, waste an essence in the morning. Um, so I think a lot of the time that's about, uh, you know, trying to stay relaxed. I think a lot of people get quite twitchy and, um, and, and quite angsty when they have a lot of time in the day before they're meant before they're due to compete. It's a bit like if you have to compete early in the morning, not being being able to get to sleep the night before. Um, so that's what's quite nice about the team event being first is that you have two other guys to kind of bounce off of and um, you know keep ourselves entertained until the race in the evening. But you know we tend to just kind of keep switched off. Um, we don't tend to talk about the competition or or the race. We just tend to you know keep relaxed. We might have some kind of like activation effort in the morning and then that'll be it really and the coaches kind of leave us to their own devices as well it's just about staying relaxed and then uh, giving it your full dedication in the afternoon so are they like distraction tactics or do you watch a box set or do you just go for a run like how, how do you stop yourself from thinking about something you've been working for for so long you know usually we just kind of rip into each other which um <laughs> it, it distracts us a little bit but no i think like we all got a bit a bit keen on well, I mean we tend to get keen on some games or something like that so we all got a bit attached to a game called Civilization at the games um, uh, which is excellent for wasting time um, but yeah uh, I think that's what's quite nice about being in a team I think I'd maybe struggle a little bit more if I was just by myself um, you know left with my own thoughts uh, before a kind of major event like that Who was the best on the game? <laughs> um, I don't know I'd like to say myself but we're all pretty competitive so they'd probably say each other as well um, but uh, yeah, no, was, uh, to be honest, we weren't really, you, you couldn't play multiplayer. We were just kind of all sitting there playing individual against the computer. So it was a bit difficult to compare, to be honest. I think in the next Olympics, I'm going to try and go there with a camera and film all of the athletes playing computer games because the uh, Olympic hockey, hockey team also did the same. So I think there was like this sub-competition of lots of computer game playing going on in between. We had a bit of an interesting thing going on, actually, because... Um, uh, our head coach um, at the time uh, wasn't too keen on athletes kind of using their phones in the and we call it the track centre. So it's basically the kind of uh, you know the field of play where we all sit and wait to get on the track. Um, and that was the same in training and things like that. But I think that was something that a lot of the athletes tend to push back against because it is it's a great distraction to kind of take your mind off of um, 
uh, off the job in hand because sometimes overthinking something can become a bit of um, a bit of a distraction itself. Um, so yeah, you're right saying that there's a lot of athletes kind of with their head and their phones with their head in their games, but it's usually just a bit of distraction. With that, uh, I was recently listening to an audio book with Ariana Huffington talking about the amount of time people are looking at their phones and how late yeah. they can look at them. Are you, have you ever been given any recommendations by any psychologists or by performance coaches saying how many hours you should look at it? Maybe you need to switch screens off after a certain time or do they just trust you as an adult? <laughs> No, I'd, I'd say for me, I, I, I treat it in, in phases. I'd say, um, you know, like after the games where there's lots going on um, and you've got plenty of time to socialise, you know, go ahead and enjoy yourself. Um, I'm really not going to be playing any games at all. Um, but then when it comes to, you know, it has a time and a place. I think when it comes to a taper, um, you know, people always say before the Olympics, oh, you must be training more. But in fact, we end up training less, but the quality gets higher. Um, but what it means is that the time between sessions um, you're really expected to stay off your feet and not really do anything at all. You're not expected to. You're not meant to go out for dinner. You're not meant to kind of uh, go out and socialise. You're meant meant to just kind of sit around in the cover. Um, so that's where you know screens in essence become become really handy. But I think it's important that stays periodised. So as you say, you know we don't. Um, you know I'm not someone who's glued to my phone 24 seven. It just has a time and a place when it um, when necessary. And when you've got access to the internet and you're competing and everything like that, do you ever look up what you what other people think about what you've been doing at all? Um, I'd, I'd say because I guess that that's the old trap that some people look at um, derogatory comments, don't they? And they and it and it throws them off. Um, you know, I'd, I'd say I'm fortunate enough never to have received any trolling. Um, uh, you know, uh, I mean, not massively anyway. Um, so it's never really been that much of a distraction, but I'd say, um, usually when I get to the track, I'll put my phone into, um, airplane mode and, um, and that'll be it really. So I don't get any distractions from, you know, from texts from family or friends. Um, so I essentially just use my, my phone as a timer from, and, and as an iPod from that, from that point on. Hmm. Okay. Very interesting. Now you, you mentioned that in the build up to the games, the, the training kind of tapers down a little bit. When it's at its highest point, what is a typical training day for you like, Callum? Um, it would probably be quite similar to what we had yesterday. So that would be uh, gym in the morning, which is usually from 10 until 12, um, and then track, which would be from 2 till 5. Um, so the gym uh, tends to be pretty much exclusively lower body for us. Um, so if you imagine your kind of typical guy at the gym who has a huge upper body and tiny legs, we're basically the opposite of that. Um, we... We look like kind of upside down triangles in that essence. <laughs> um, uh, and then for a track, um, which is which is one of the nicer bits about splinting in essence, is that we'll actually only do um, from two to five. We'll actually only do maybe four efforts in that session, and the rest of the time we'll be sitting around the covering, um, which kind of hones into this kind of the, the splint nature of the sport. Um, but that bit's quite nice because you can always catch up with your teammates, and it, it creates a real good kind of atmosphere in the track. Um, that amount of time in between efforts, um, which is kind of the upside to it. But um, but I will say we do work hard for those four efforts, and you know after each and every one of them, you might be kind of on the floor in a pool of sweat, um, and and you'd be asking for more than half an hour's rest in between the, in between those. Yeah, when when you're doing that, when you're doing the sprint, like I once read or was given a bit of advice that you could actually do a marathon 
and only trained for it using sprints and stuff. Do you ever do any kind of longer cycling? Do you ever do any kind of long rides or, or does that not help you at all? Um, no, it has, it has a place. I think it's, I think it's where the sports, um, in a bit of a transition phase where it used, we used to have maybe, um, maybe like four hours a week on the load. Um, but now that's reduced to sometimes even as little as an hour to 45 minutes a week. Um, but it, it depends. It depends which nation. I think you know some of the nations are still really keen on it. Um, we're becoming less keen on it, and other nations are even less keen on it than us. Um, but we did used to do kind of camps in in Majorca, um, uh, you know, in the winter, and we'd be doing kind of maybe five five hours maximum a day, um, and they're really great fun. But we're not we're not always quite sure if that's specifically applicable to sprint. Um, so yeah, it's a bit of a transition phase at the moment. When did you make the commitment to track cycling was there ever any going to be time for you to do any road cycling at all or were you always focus on track cycling ever since those 2004 games yeah well um i think that's the thing i think people especially in cycling are quite surprised that i was quite set on track splint early on because i think a lot of people who come to cycling end up wanting to doing the you know naturally want to do a tour de france um but for me seeing track cycling um that was what kind of really grabbed me and there's a few things that, that kind of really um, kind of cemented me into that element of the sport. Um, the first bit was is the, the the kind of controllable nature, and and what I mean by that is is that I can do an effort which lasts ten seconds, and then I can immediately know whether that was better or worse than last week, or better or worse than ones I've ever done. And the difference between that and road cycling is that road cycling is often based on your competitors, and you might actually not really know if you're getting better or worse from day to day. Um, you know, it's it's really quite it's really quite tricky to figure out where you are. And and this and the second element of the um, of why I stuck with track sprint was because it was quite it's really quite a nice speed sensation. Um, you know, anyone who knows looking at a track, you know, the, the bankings are kind of forty eight degrees. Um, it allows you to go really fast um, uh, on quite a tight corner, and it gives you a little kind of G four sensation as, as you whip down the track. Um, and as like a fourteen year old who's who's quite keen on speed, that was just what really kind of grabbed me about it. Um, and then there was also the social element that I mentioned earlier. I think that Nate, I think that that develops a real community within the sprint sport, especially. Is that um, you, if you're training with someone, you really get to know them because, to be honest, most of the time you're spent sitting around the covering and, and, and chatting. Mm. Were you ever scared when you first went on the track? Yeah, no, I still am today, to be honest. <laughs> uh, it's not that I'm, it's not that I'm bad with heights, but I think there's always something in the back of your mind that knows that you could slip from the top if you go a little bit too slow and at that point you've got a lot of splinters and a lot of burns to deal with um but i'd say uh for me it's something that we really switches off when i'm racing which is quite strange so um I, you'll see in the match sprint it can be quite tactical quite kind of cat and mouse is what everyone tends to call it um so one of the tactics someone might use if they're the front is to go as slow as they can on the banking to force the guy behind to take the front um but if if I'm in two and I really want the back, I'll go as I'll go as slow as they will, um, you know. And this and this slipping slipping off just to keep that position. It's something that really switches off when you're racing because you just want to just want to be your opponent, basically. Yeah, sounds pretty scary. What's the worst crash that you've had? Um, the worst one I've had was probably it wasn't actually that bad in the end. But um, so again, if you look at the if you look at the velodrome, you've got the banking on your uh, right hand side. And then, uh, which is fine if you fall to your right, because it's not actually that far to fall. But if you fall to your left, it's quite a it's quite a way to fall. Um, so I fell to my left and snapped my collarbone in half. 
Oh. Um, yeah, yeah. So, but to be honest, the leave wasn't too bad. It was better. I'll take that over the back injury any day because I got in for surgery maybe a day or two after. Um, you know, it was a plate and six screws. Luckily, the clean was the, it was a clean break right in the middle, so there was there was plenty of space to plate it. And it was back in the bike within two three days after that as well. Um, so yeah, um, I, I can recommend making a collarbone right in the middle. But I mean, I mean other people make it <laughs> something like that, and it's and it's a bit trickier. But if you've got a real kind of clean simple break, it's really not that bad at all. And the doctor was fine with you getting back on the bike three days later. Yeah, it was quite tentative. We kind of yeah. Um, you know, is you've got to be careful with the uh, with the effects of the anaesthetic and stuff like that. But um, yeah, more or less, it's you're, you're pretty much good to go for a steady pedal after that. Now, while we're talking about injuries and we're talking about being in doctors' surgeries yeah. and things like that, we've got to talk about what happened in in 2011, year before yeah. the London Olympics. You, you found a lump on your neck. Fortunately, they later found out that it wasn't cancerous. Just Tell us all about that experience, Callum, because that sounds more scary than going on a on on a track at any time. Yeah, and it puts things into perspective a lot of the time as well. I think it helps helps through my career today. But um, yeah, it was it was it was a it was quite a dark time for my family because my um, I learned about that time my grandfather just died of cancer as well. Um, so basically, I I I had the weekend at home and came to the track and I was going to go and see the doctor because I had quite a big lump on on one side of my neck. And then uh, the doctor wasn't in, so the physio saw it and said, um, you know, that doesn't look great. We'll probably just send you to A&E. And, um, and British Cycling, as I'm sure a lot of sports teams do, um, you know, have contacts in, in A&E just to make sure that they're, you know, so they can keep up to date with athletes and stuff like that. So I was, I was treated pretty well. Um, you know, saw the saw the head of A&E pretty, pretty, pretty quickly. And um, and he said to me after doing a... After doing a uh, an ultrasound, a blood test, um, and kind of just a bit of an observation, and, and tying that up with with my age and the fact that I've been having night sweats for about a week or so. Um, he said to me that um, basically he was pretty sure that it was it was cancer, um, and that it was and that it was lymphoma, and that it was it was going to be quite serious. And he really wanted me to see a specialist pretty quickly. Um, so this is when I was about um, eighteen years old. And I hadn't been away from home for very long, so it was, it was my coach who was with me at the time when when I got that initial news, and then and then my mum drove down that drove down that day from Edinburgh, um, uh, just you know just for a bit of support and stuff like that. But um, no, it was quite tricky because I think I think especially when you're young, um, and I, I think also the position that I was I was, I was put in with you know because because I trust the BC medical team um, very highly, and for them to recommend. Um, the A and E doctor, and also you know that that kind of trust transfers. I kind of really trust him as well. Um, so I, I took his opinion pretty seriously, um, and and that wasn't great. So then I got referred to um, referred to the specialist, who also uh, was pretty concerned. Um, we went for you know more blood tests, um, which again still pointing towards that diagnosis. Um, I had a needle biopsy. Um, which isn't particularly pleasant. I wouldn't recommend that to anyone. Um, it's it's basically where they take a syringe and put it into the the bit that they want to um, uh, take the biopsy from, and they and they scrape the cells off as oh. well as as well as pulling the punch. Um, but because it's in your neck, you can heal it scrape, which isn't very nice at all. Mm. But yeah, so they did that, and then thank and then surprisingly, that one came back um, negative. Um, but they weren't really convinced, so they called me back in for a second needle biopsy. 
um, of which that also came back negative. So then we went back to the consultant, and they and she w- still really wasn't too convinced. She wanted me to go for a full biopsy because they were convinced that it was still cancer. Um, but at that point, we opted not to. Um, and then she pretty much said that she would have put money on being, you know, would have put money on that. So that's being what it, what, what what she thought it was. Um, so it was basically just a month that was really quite uncertain and and. And not particularly great, but obviously it was great to get the diagnosis in the end. It, it was apparently atypical glandular fever. Um, wow. yeah, but yeah, not a great time for me or my family. Um, but yeah, th- thankfully the diagnosis came up uh, negative in the end. And during that month, was there just no training or, or was training some way which in some ways helped you because it made you not think about it? Like, How, how did the rest of your life go on during that month? Because mentally you must have been all over the place. Yeah, well, I mean, to be honest, it was it was one of these things where um, I, I, I'd kind of prepared myself for the diagnosis, and I knew that it was, you know, there's, there's in terms of how cancers go, the one that they thought it was, you know, there's a 99% survival rate, I'm fit and healthy, and, you know, regardless of whether it is or isn't, I can get through this. Um, and then also, I, but yeah, to be honest, I did, I did do a bit of training. I, I, it all kind of came crashing to a stop, and I just started doing what I enjoyed on the bike, which was kind of just going out on the road and when it was sunny and when it suited me, really. But I think that's always quite a nice escape. It's a great, it's a great way to clear your head is to go out on the bike just by yourself and and have some space through. And it's something that I still do today when when um, you know things aren't going too well. It's just to get out on the bike and, and clear my head. So yeah, it did have a place. Mm. Well, it's so good that you're giving the all clear and. Obviously, four years, five years later, you know, you, you get a gold medal. So it's a, a, an amazing story there, Callum. Let, let's talk about the the start of your your cycling career. Now, you, you watch those two thousand four games, and you know, for a lot of people, they wouldn't know where to start track cycling. How easy was it for you to to get going once you've kind of been inspired? No, it's a bit of a coincidence because um, um, as a kid, I kind of because uh, there was a big up my family, so. Um, I, I kind of uh, was born in Glasgow, was there until about six, and then was in Dunfermline from uh, till about twelve, and then I moved to Edinburgh um, from about twelve till uh, seventeen. And it was through that move to Edinburgh that I was finally kind of given the opportunity to 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 ride the track because at the time that was the only banked um, wooden velodrome, in, you know, in Scotland. Um, but it didn't it didn't go smoothly because the first time I went down um, was in the autumn. And I showed up and they said, oh, this is the last session of the season because we close over the winter. So I came back another six months later and, and, and gave it a go and was just hooked from that point on. But yeah, it really was just a bit of a coincidence um, through the circumstance of my family moving to Edinburgh that, that kind of really gave me the chance to, to give it a go. Um, but I mean, I think that really, it really kind of um, makes me want to you know, push for you know, the growth of the facilities and the growth of the sport um, you know, throughout the UK because I, I don't... I, I find it really difficult to suggest to like a, an eight-year-old budding cyclist to go out on the road and mix with the traffic if he's a keen cyclist because it's not safe. Um, but what I can wholeheartedly recommend them to do is go onto a track or a closed uh, traffic environment, um, get up their confidence, and then go out on the road and, and do everything. Um, so these facilities are like you know they're not just essential for bringing sport through; they're essential for you know helping the NHS, helping the environment. It's it's a whole bigger picture thing that I think facilities can bring to to the benefit of the country. Yeah, definitely, and hopefully with the success which British Cycling continues to get, that 
people will uh, start to help improve that as well of, of course yeah. what, what you what you guys did was absolutely incredible now i, I want to talk about your, your your family life now it, it has been documented before that your parents split up while you you were growing up did that affect your your training that did that affect your goals in in any way uh no i'd say well i was about i was six when they split up so um it, it, it didn't it didn't particularly um i'd say um I, I kind of naturally gravitated a bit a bit closer to my mum um through those early days um when it, when it's kind of breaking through in the sport because she used to she's you know the athletic and and um and was a really good swimmer back in the day um and uh, and my dad is far more similar to my brother where you know he, he kind of likes likes to smoke and a drink and, and likes to enjoy himself um a little bit more than I do so it was it was I really kind of gravitated more towards my mum in those in those earlier years because she was um she was uh, kind of she had a, a bank of knowledge I could really kind of tap into in that essence um but no, I, I wouldn't really say it affected it I say I say there's there was you know a little bit of anxiety in the early years about um you know having having mum and dad spectate um, come and come and watch uh um you know in the same venue at the same time um but apart from that no it, it really wasn't really wasn't much of an issue to be honest but they were both there for 2016 is that right yeah they were and that was that was a great moment actually so my mum my dad's uh, my stepdad and, and um and my brother were all there together so it was really great to share that share that moment with all of them hey i'm ryan reynolds at Mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Don't worry, we've got more from Callum in just a few moments, but I want to tell you about Sportachino. Sportachino is the video cast that I produce at sportachino.com. Every single day, we've got a new little bit of nugget for you, a 30-minute daily video cast all about sports, health, and fitness. 
Mondays and Fridays, we're talking about all the big weekend action that has happened and is happening. On a Tuesday, we specifically look at fitness, health, and nutrition. On a Wednesday, we talk wrestling, in particular WWE. And on a Thursday, we look at the world of business and how it relates to sports. So that could be media, that could be tech, that could be apps, that could be gadgets, that could be rights. It could be all kinds of things. And that is every Thursday. We're live at 3 p.m. British Standard Time. That's 10 a.m. Eastern, 7 a.m. Pacific. Go check it out and let me know what you think. All right, that is Sportuccino at Sportuccino.com. All right, let's return to the conversation with the best in the world. It's Callum Skinner. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Yeah, let's fast right back forward to 2016 because this was your first Olympics. Even forgetting about competing, what was that like for you? Just the experience of being in Rio. Yeah, it was crazy. I think it was. I, th- I think the Commonwealth Games is kind of like a a stepping stone on the on the way to what the experience is like. But it really still doesn't prepare you fully for for how intense and how big the, the games are in comparison to the Commonwealth Games. Um, yeah, I think like a good example was like I was. We were just sitting in the village um, in our in our blocks um, in our apartment block, and um, all the all the village uh, throughout the villages like the old tennis court and the old swimming pool and stuff like that. And you just look out the window and you see Novak Djokovic practicing with, um, you know, Boris Becker. And all of a sudden, there's a huge crowd packed down the tennis court and and really enjoying what they're what they're doing. It, it was just that kind of surreal moment. And you and you'd be walking along and you see Usain Bolt or you or you'd see Michael Phelps and, th- and things like that. And it was just a whole new level of um, kind of profile and kind of intensity almost. Um, but I'd say I'd say that only kind of really started to sink in. After the event was finished, I say beforehand we were so focused that you know anyone could have walked past and we wouldn't really have cared because we were just there to do our job. And then afterwards, you can get soaked up in the in, in the games experience. Um, but yeah, there's a there's a new level of intensity because everyone who's there is of a is of a pretty serious level and is pretty seriously looking to win or or at least medal. Um, and also, there's there's a higher profile of guys there as well. So it was it was it was an incredible atmosphere to be in. Um, and it's it's really quite tricky to try and describe it to, to other people, and then almost when when the games are finished, it's almost like someone's just let off the let off the steam valve of all these athletes, <laughs> you know, and they they behaved themselves so well for at least six months before, you know, um, you know, abstaining from like partying or drinking or anything like that, you know, they've had they'll they'll be in the best shape of their lives. They've they've monitored the diet so carefully. And then win, lose, or draw, they all want to just completely let loose. And I feel a bit sorry for the athletes that have to compete on the last day, um, because you'll see you towards the end, you you know people stop wearing team kit, people start to look a bit dishevelled, especially if you if you get in the food hall early in the morning, you start to see people coming in from nights out afterwards. Um, so if I was competing on the last day, I'd probably start to lose my focus a little bit. But luckily, we're in, we're in the middle. Um, so yeah, it's it's a crazy little uh, kind of village in essence. It's um, yeah, it's, it's an amazing place. Yeah, it. I think someone else described it very similar to you on the podcast. I can't remember who it was. And I think we both compared it to when everyone's studying at university and they finally finish their exams and then all go a little bit crazy. Um, did you yeah. get any photos of any of some of these other famous athletes or, or did you play it cool or, or weren't interested at all? Uh, I'm not one for the photos, do I don't know. <laughs> I think 
I felt a bit sorry for Usain Bolt actually because he was walking along and there was in, in the food hall and he's all, he's got his cap on and his and his hood up and his you know sunglasses on and you know headphones on as well so he, he couldn't make it clear that he doesn't really want to speak to anyone which I which I completely understand and you've got and you you have him literally tripping over athletes who are jumping in front of him trying to get a selfie with him um so i mean you can see the darker side of that and i'm, I'm just quite happy to leave them to it and and um you know i'm not you know i yeah i'll just leave them to that one i think um there's other athletes that are pretty keen on the photos and that's that's fair enough to them some some athletes don't like to stay in the village would you go back to the village yeah for sure no i think it's i think it's a great place um i i I think uh, you know some athletes complain about the food or, or something like that as well, but I think I think there's something quite nice about you know everyone being in the same boat. Um, you know that's why I, I think it's I think it's sometimes a bit to the detriment of the sport when you have like the American basketball team not staying in the village. Um, I, th- I think it's better when everyone's in the same boat all together, and because it really harvests that kind of community spirit, which again is what the Olympics is about. Um, and you know, as, as much as people complain about the food, you know, if we're all in the same boat, we're all eating the same food, then it's not a disadvantage to anyone. You know, I think it's it's important that we all kind of get behind the village. Mm. So, what is your your typical diet like? What what, what are you eating most days, Callum? Um, it's really just quite protein heavy. So we, we have a lot of muscle mass in our legs that we have to we have to try and maintain. So that would be kind of um, eight solid portions of, of protein a day, and that would be twenty grams of protein in each of those portions. Um, so yeah, it's kind of drilled into us. It's just always to be thinking about proteins. Her body's not without it. Um, but to be honest, most uh, I'm kind of more of the I'm kind of tend to be a bit more independent on this than some of the other athletes. Um, basically, we we're kind of monitored um, at least every month with uh, something called the DEXA scan, which uses um, X-rays to determine your um, how much of your uh, even down to your limbs, how much of your you know your limbs are kind of uh, body fat, uh, lean muscle, and also your bone density and bone structure. Um, but then we also have more traditional skin folds. And basically, as long as those don't, a lot, as long as those don't get too out of kilter, you're pretty much free to do what you want. Um, and you can tap into the nutritionist as much as you like for kind of uh, the kind of well-being side of it and and what you can do to kind of make yourself a kind of healthier and better athlete. Mm. So, what are your vices? What what are the foods which you you sometimes sneak in? I, what, yeah, I've tripped up onto. <laughs> uh, no, I don't know. I'm, I'm quite. Uh, it's, it's a bit of a funny one. I'm not really kind of set on one thing. I just kind of. I, we're a bit. Uh, my, I live with another cyclist called Kieran Maddy actually, and um, we we literally live above a Sainsbury's, so that can be a bit of a temptation sometimes because we just pop down and we kind of treat it as our pantry basically because <laughs> it's it's by. Um, so there's there's always a, a kind of plethora of bad foods to to treat yourself to down there. Um, but no, I, I wouldn't say no to donuts and burgers, though. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's always. Would, would that be as like a cheat day, or, or would that just be as like a, a little a little extra you could fit in on on a training day? No, not not. I don't, to be honest, I try and stay away from them as much as I can. Especially <laughs> you know now, now we're kind of three weeks towards World Championships. They really expect you to kind of tighten up a little bit. Um, so yeah, as much as your phone is kind of periodized between kind of getting yourself entrenched into a video game and not, I think there's, for me, I'm quite good at periodizing times when I can really focus on my diet and times when I can kind of let loose a little bit. Now you spoke earlier about your team and how close you were and the three of you winning that team sprint gold medal in an Olympic time. Absolutely amazing. And you spoke about your friendship and camaraderie. Obviously you then faced Jason in the final. 
um, of the individual sprint. Uh, how difficult or how strange is it to go from being so close to having such a good friendship to, with someone to realising that they are your direct rival between gold and silver? I'd say, to be honest, there's always a, a direct rivalry, even within within the team. I think although there's only three guys who get to go to the games, there's a, there's another three, four, five guys back home who you've been um, in competition with for the last, you know, let's say even four years to show your hand as best you can to get selected for that team. So competing with teammates isn't always as unusual as everyone might think. Um, but to be honest, by the by the point we got to this the sprint major final. Um, I think for me that was uh, it was basically just kind of like a bonus because the, the sprint and the Keelan, which my other two events after the team sprint, we really hadn't focused on at all, and that's because we couldn't afford to. Um, basically, I, I, you know, to be honest, I was the weekly, I was the weekly wink, uh, weak link in the team um, when it came to the world championships previously, um, and I knew that, and that's where I knew and my coaches knew that all we had to focus on was team spin so we could get that so we could get that gold medal and that's ultimately what we did um but I'd say you know as I was coming through my career um sprint was always one of my favorite events and it was something that I feel quite comfortable in so I kind of felt as if I had a good chance as well but yeah it it was strange because Jason was also my roommate in the in the village um so not only are we are we teammates we're kind of you know sleeping in the same room and you know it's the first person it's the first it's the last person i see when i go to sleep and it's going to be the first person i see when i wake up before an olympic final um but i mean even that i think i think the best we, we deal with it as we do with all the other kind of tense situations it's kind of just a bit of a laugh and a joke really um whilst we're out of the velodrome so i remember you know um i basically so our beds are it's like a twin room basically in the village so um, you know, I'd, I'd I'd say okay, I'm definitely going to sleep now and kind of switch off the lights, and then kind of flick him back on 30 seconds later, and I'd be staring straight at him, <laughs> and and say, oh yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, I'm going to go to sleep now. I'm going to go to sleep now, and then and then he'd say something about how strong he's feeling and how how amazing he's feeling, and I'd say, oh yeah, um, <laughs> you know, it's going to be so easy for me tomorrow. I think it would be a breeze and really strong as well, and those kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, I think I think through kind of comedy and laughter is kind of the, the way that we kind of diffuse any kind of tension that would be there. Um, and then once we kind of set set foot in the velodrome, that you know the jokes stop and it's kind of game face on. And that's that was similar to our approach for team spin as well. It's it's kind of a little bit of distraction in in the time that you have to deal with, and then you know a firm focus when when you get to the venue and it's and it's you know it's, it's all about the job in hand. That's that's great because it's while you're both trying to wind each other up in some ways, it's relaxing both of you at the same time. No, that that's fantastic. How how did you feel when you got the silver? Yeah, no, um, I, to be honest, although from from the point of the gold medal onwards, anything was a bonus. I'd, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't um, a little bit disappointed not to win. Um, but I think that's something that's just kind of in the DNA of every athlete at, at that level is that. You know, if you're in a race, you know you wouldn't do the race unless you thought you had a chance of winning. And I, I, I especially thought after um, after the the way the semi-finals went, where where I got through pretty clean with with two straight wins, and Jason had to go to best of three, that I kind of felt like the momentum was in my court, um, and that maybe I had a chance of winning. But ultimately, you know, thinking realistically, at the end of the day, I was up against the reigning Olympic champion, someone um, who's probably one of the best the sport's ever seen in terms of Olympic in terms of Olympic results, and also someone who qualified faster than me. So the result, um, you know, reflected you know who was best in the day. Um, 
but I think as an athlete, you know, you you're always going into a race thinking you want to win. Um, so ultimately, I'm kind of you know I'm, I'm pretty ha- I'm really happy with the silver, but it's something that next time I'd, I'd I'd want to remedy, especially if we end up in the same position at Tokyo. I'd love to come away with that gold. Well, we'll keep our fingers crossed for that. I've just got one more question before we go. Now, you you won that gold medal, you won the silver medal. Amazing highs from Rio. How long did those highs last? And then when did you take stock, take a moment, reflect, and then also start to to plan the next four-year cycle? Yeah, I'd say the... Um, so you're probably kind of asking about the kind of the, the inevitable low that, that comes after that high. And I think that kind of comes... Um, for me, it came maybe like three weeks after. Um, so basically... I mean, I had I had some of the best the best days of my life after those games. Um, after the after the games were finished, and it's basically you know, uh, I'd love to be able to, you know, the cant and the member all of it. But to be honest, most of it's quite easy because it was just one big party from from the day the competition finished to the day we got on the plane home. Um, and and I think that's so important in a way, just to release that that, that stress that, that that was maybe even subconsciously there. Um, because I think I think ultimately looking back and and part of what I found in my reflections was that there was there was like a hell of a lot of pressure on me and this was something that the team psychologist said as well that um, you know there was there was so much pressure on you and and that came from a few avenues that was the fact that um, we were reigning Olympic champions in in, in that team sprint um, as well as winning the one before in Beijing. Um, Jason and Phil, my teammates, were also reigning Olympic champions and and everyone knew that. You know, as I said earlier, I was the weak link in that team. You know, if you go by the world championships and and the world championships before that, and then also that I was I was filling the shoes of Chris Hoy. I was taking up his lanes in in, in that position, and obviously everyone knows how successful he is. Um, so there was a huge. I mean, only looking back, there was a huge, huge amount of pressure, and and it could have been a complete disaster. I could have, I could have got dropped um, when when Jason and Phil set off, which is which is what happened at Worlds in essence, and that and that pretty much scuppers any chances of meeting a good lap and then you know if, if you look at that you'd, you'd see that Jason today wouldn't be Britain's most successful Olympian because we wouldn't have won um I felt I would have felt like I would have you know let down the boys um because they were obviously on good enough form to be able to pick up another gold um yeah it, it, it could have been it could have been a complete disaster you know personally and, and, and luckily it wasn't um so I think I think it takes a little while to relieve that that stress that was that was maybe even that was obviously there, and it was it was Chris Boardman that actually sent me a he sent me a direct message on Twitter after after we'd won the gold, and he said um, there was no one in that velodrome last night who had more pressure on them than you, and you performed you know well done, um, and I think that was that was probably the start of that initial reflection that that um, it it it'd been it'd been such a hard ride to get to that point. We'd been putting so much work as a team. And for all to come off, um, just kind of made the made the victory even sweeter. Um, but yeah, that that kind of that kind of elation and that high that you get having all that work pay off, you know, lasted for maybe kind of uh, you know three weeks, where you know you think you're you're Olympic champion, you don't have a care in the world, everything's rosy and dandy, um, and you're basically just kind of looking about, you know, who's going out tonight and and what's going to be going on tonight, basically, and 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 that kind of thing. Um, but that that does kind of come come to a bit of a low eventually, and I, I'm not even sure if it is a low. I think it might just be reality. I think it's because that's such a high um, that even coming back down to kind of like an average level seems like a low by comparison. 
Um, so that can be quite difficult to deal with, I think, sometimes. And you and you realize that um, you know all, all the problems that you thought you left behind are essentially still there. Um, and that you know, um, if you want to continue to win medals, you're going to have to continue to put the work in. And and that people are now going to start expecting results of you as well because of that newfound um, kind of result of the Olympics. Um, so it takes a little while to get your head around. And, and the thing that I found best for me was that um, I'd had a month of after the games, the month was was really busy with kind of sponsorship commitments, family commitments, friends commitments, um, uh, you know, media stuff. And what I did was I kind of um, I said to my coach, you know, I think I need to get away from it all because it's, it's all just getting a bit too much. It's just getting a bit too busy. Um, so I went off to Australia, which was which is perfect because uh, you know I spent a month there. Um, I got to train with the Australian team, which was really good of them. I got to see you know another side of another side of the sport. And also the time difference was big enough that no one could really bother me or, or call me, and and the distance was long enough that I couldn't I couldn't have I, w- I didn't have to fly back for any appearances or anything like that as well. And and essentially all I did out there was just it was like what I did with my cancer scare. I just went out and, and loaded my bike when I felt like it in the sunshine, and just had the best time ever. And and it was that kind of love for the sport that kind of. Um, got me out of that. Got me out of that phase because um, essentially, I just I just love riding my bike, and that's when I decided that this is something I want to continue to do. Um, you know, I, I, in my opinion, I've got one of the best jobs in the world, and and why would I want to stop now? And 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 eventually, you end up finding that. And, and so in Australia, I kind of found my love for the sport again, and then in South Africa, which I went away for two months after that, was when I really kind of found my love for kind of competition and competing and and wanting to win more medals at Tokyo. Kind of came back. Um, but yeah, I, I wasn't in that position where I won Olympic gold and then immediately thought I'm going to Tokyo and I want more. Um, it was, it was a longer process than that. And, and now I'm in contention for the world champs coming up in, in, in three weeks and, and just in a really good place and looking to build on the results that, that I picked up in the summer. Absolutely amazing story, Callum. I'm so glad you're in that place. We can't wait to see you competing at the World Championships and in Tokyo in 2020. I'm sure more great success is in front of you. Just before you go, Callum, can you let us know how we can continue to follow you on social media, on Twitter and anything like that, please? Yeah, sure. I'm most active on Twitter. Um, You can sift through the nonsense and get some decent cycling stuff every now and again. Um, my, my Twitter handle's uh, at Callum Skinner uh, double L um, but I'm also on Instagram and Facebook but most active on Twitter All right, we will check it out Callum Skinner thank you for being on the programme and thank you for being the best in the world <laughs> always thanks the best in the world podcast with Richard Parr Wonderful chat there with Callum Skinner, but he wasn't the first track cyclist to have appeared on the podcast. That was Andy Tennant. I believe that was episode four. Go back and check that out. Also, if you enjoy your two-wheeled sports, you might also want to go back and listen to the recent interview with the BMX champion, Connor Fields. He was on, I think, two episodes ago. He won Olympic gold at Rio de Janeiro as well. Both fantastic interviews that you can listen to. And the whole back catalogue is on ACAST and it's on iTunes. And while you're on iTunes, if you get a moment to subscribe and give us a rating and review, that would really help the show. I'd really appreciate that. On next week's programme, we speak to the Olympic swimming champion, Larry Kraselberg. It's a fantastic interview. You don't want to miss it. When's it out? Next Wednesday, of course, on iTunes, on Stitcher, 
on ACAST. It's the best in the world with Richard Parr. But until then, have a great week. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.